Welcome to the Veil vale Christian Church Podcast. Today, Pastor Ben Pitney is going to speak about Satan with a message titled, Who is Satan? Join us in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17. At Veil vale Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. seems so unholy and irreverent. It's almost satanic in church of all places. That's because we're talking about Satan today and who this guy is. And when you bring, trying to find a way to conclude the series on eternity, and uh, I wasn't going to conclude with Satan, but I think you're going to understand why. We're going to talk about Satan and who he is today. Well, you know, we've spent the last six weeks working through eternity and uh, the implications and how eternity should, uh, when understood and embraced, should cause us to live and think and respond to the world that we live in. It should cause us to, to be different, no doubt. Um, but you can't talk about eternity and eternity spent with God without talking about eternal separation from God. Um, called hell. And there's no reason to talk about hell without talking about Satan. <laughs> so as much as I'm really not excited about talking about Satan, I actually kind of am a little bit because I think that we don't understand who he is very much. I think that we, because of just our, our, our nature, um, we avoid kind of discussing him. And uh, we, he, gets a, he gets blamed for a lot of things. Actually, he, I, I think he's fully responsible for, but I also think that he's not responsible for. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, so uh, he's real. The devil um, is real. And so I want you to take out your Bible and turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. That's where we're going to be today. Now, Ezekiel chapter 28. So here's what's going on. We're going to talk about this quite a bit um, over the next number of weeks. The implications are pretty huge. See, the day you swear allegiance to the king, the day you give your life to Jesus, all right, where um, he owns you, not just, you know, the devil believes and Satan believes in God, all right? So what's the difference here? It's the day we swear allegiance to the king and surrender your life to the king and where he becomes the owner of you because you surrender your life to him. So lots of amazing things happen when that, when that happens, right? Jesus gives you eternal life. We've talked that through. And we're forgiven of all of our sin. We're forgiven past, present, and future of all of our sin. We are empowered to live a whole new life. We're made new, transformed from the inside out, right? Our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, right? We begin to love and care for other Christ followers. But we soon realize when you give your life to Christ, you soon begin to understand something else is happening to us at the same time, right? We begin to struggle with what God expects from us. And to live the way God wants us to live. We begin to struggle with that. Why do we have these struggles? Why is this so hard, right? Why do our lives seem like we're in the middle of a war zone? 
Why does each new day feel like it's the start of a brand new battle? So we're going to try to answer um, a lot of these questions, right? But here is um, a bit of a summary, right? The painful truth is that we're in the middle of a spiritual war between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. That's why it's so hard. That's why it's so difficult, right? It's a life and death struggle, and it's real, and it affects every one of us. All of us, believers and non-believers alike, it's affecting all of us. We're caught in the middle of this war, this spiritual battle. Now, so I want you to think through this lens. It'll be something that will take time to absorb. I'm going to put up this quote, and I want you to kind of think about it right now, all right? Here's the thing. When we repudiate Satan's designs and trust the power and the wisdom and the kindness of God through Christ, we fulfill God's purpose in letting Satan live. Why does he let him live? Well, this is going to answer that question, right? We glorify when we do this, when we repudiate Satan's designs, we glorify the immeasurable, matchless worth of Jesus. So God creates us and created us for relationship with him. He wants relationship with us, with you and I. That's what he wants. He's always wanted that. That is built into us by design. Now, if I were running things, I would do it a little different. So it's a good thing I'm not in charge, all right? I wouldn't be great if I was in charge of who got a driver's license, okay? I would be really good at that. But in terms of the design for the universe, I would fix it so that there wasn't any evil. I would immediately start with killing Satan. He would be over and done with. So there's reason why God allows him and allowed him to live all right, still, it's because he wants relationship with us. And so if there was no evil, if there was no Satan, we would be left to decide for ourselves and we would be just fine being God of our own lives. And we wouldn't need God. We wouldn't choose God. We would be in control of everything. So this this should answer the question somewhat right now. And we're gonna discover this together, why there's this big battle and what we do in the middle of it and, and God's purpose and plan. So for us to understand the war, we got to first understand more about this mysterious creature called Satan. So that's who we're going to study for the next number of weeks and uh, sort of study the battle, the spiritual battle, all right? Where did Satan come from? Why is he so powerful? Why did he start a war with God? What is Satan like? Why did Satan rebel against God? And what did God do about his rebellion? So here's my first point, uh, number one. What is Satan like? Let's read in Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, when you read through the Hebrew in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language is difficult to understand. There are less words in Hebrew than there are in English even. In, in uh, so many ways, it is not a one-word-for-one-word one translation into English. It doesn't work like that. There's multiple meanings in multiple words, all right, for uh, one Hebrew word. And so um, it takes work. When you read the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, the only way you're going to understand that book is to go back to the terminology that John uses in Revelation that's found in the Old Testament. Well, all right, now we're going to see some of these words and some of these things mean multiple things, and it just takes some work. So luckily, I've done some of that work for you, all right? And we can get to it, but it doesn't, 
um, you can't abdicate your role of studying and figuring some things out on your own as well, all right? Just to me, right? So in chapter 28, let's start right at um, verse 11. The Lord's message came to me. Son of man, sing a lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the sealer of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden the garden of God, every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, topaz, and emerald, the chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, the sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Uh, your settings and mounts were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14, I placed you there. With an anointed guardian cherub, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked about amidst fiery stones. You were blameless in your behavior from the day you were created until sin was discovered in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned, so I defiled you and banished you from the mountain of God. The guardian cherub expelled you from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty and uh, you, you corrupted your wisdom on account of your splendor. I threw you down to the ground. I placed you before kings that they might see you. Okay. Now, wow, that's a very descriptive piece of scripture, right? And so here is what's happening in summary. We're not going to go into every single detail, but enough to where you need to know God is giving a message to the prophet Ezekiel about a godless king who lived in Old Testament times, a godless king. He refers to this king as the prince of Tyre. But in verse 12, God directs his message to another person who he calls the king of Tyre, okay? This king is actually an evil spiritual power who controls the human prince of Tyre. The king is none other than Satan himself. So God begins his message to Satan by speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And he says in verse 12, look at verse 12, son of man, sing a lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord's sovereign or the sovereign Lord says. So the word lament is a powerful word. It's an important word. It is important in all kinds of meanings. It is, it, it, it is a funeral song word, a heart-rending song of sadness. That's what lament means. It's the idea of crying. It's the idea of sobbing or weeping in grief because of a broken heart. It's obvious that Satan has broken God's heart. How does this happen? Let's look. There's qualities of Satan, though, that we need to observe and kind of make note of. Most people think of Satan as dark, as ugly, an evil creature that listens to heavy metal rock music. Okay. I don't know. That's what we think. It's not true. Do you know the lead singer for Megadeth is a Christ follower? And the bass player for Megadeth a Christ follower, he led the lead singer of Megadeth to Jesus. And now Megadeth 
in their tours and then they still play. There's songs that they won't play though anymore. And there are bands that they will not open for because these two influential guys love Jesus. It's an awesome story. So be careful. Sometimes heavy metal and rock metal craziness is good. (laughs) And is totally appropriate in church. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Just like donuts are. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Some people think they're of the devil too. Verse 12 and 13, look for yourself. Make a few underlines in verse 12 and 13. Son of man, sing a lament for the king of Tyre. So I already talked about lament. Underline that word. The king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were a sealer of perfection. I would underline that. Full of wisdom, underline that. And perfect in beauty, underline that. You were in Eden, the garden of God. We all know what that is, right? Every precious stone was your covering. And look at the list. Oh, my goodness. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Okay, now, let's look at this first one, this quality or characteristic of Satan, right? Number one, sealer of perfection. What is that? This means that he could not be improved upon. That's literal meaning there. He could not be improved upon. He was so perfect that all the other angels could be modeled after him. The model of perfection. So Satan was perfect. He was a prototype angel. Prototypes are a big deal. Prototypes are important, right? There's none greater than, um, but God himself, right? Verse 12 also says he was full of wisdom. So he's the sealer of perfection, the, and he's full of wisdom. It means he was created to be the wisest of all of God's creation. In a sense, Satan was so full of wisdom that like a cup... He would overflow if just one more drop was added, full of wisdom. He was filled to capacity, in other words. With all the wisdom, he would need to be God's most important angel, full of wisdom. Okay. Verse 12 concludes then by stating that Satan was perfect in beauty. This is kind of amazing. This is the part that I think we miss when we're thinking through things or understand who Satan is, it means clearly that Satan was the most beautiful of God's creations. It was, in fact, that he was beyond debate. He was beautiful, right? Except for God, there's never been anyone more beautiful than Satan. Verse 13 gives us even more insight into his beauty by describing him as being covered with every kind of precious jewel. Look at verse 13 again, right? You were in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone. You're covering the ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mounts were made of gold. I mean, this is like, if you've got a piece of jewelry, this is it, Right? On the day you were created, they were prepared. So see, here's here's what the implications are here. Satan is sparkling brilliant. He's incredibly brilliantly bright. In fact, the original name here 
which gets kind of messed up with uh, uh, when you're war- working through a passage like this by the King James Version. They take this name and uh, inappropriately place it in places, you know. And so there's, there's some of these things that kind of happen like that. But Lucifer or son of light, um, shining star, stuff like that, right? It's because of the Hebrew It just means that light from heaven or shining one. You learn from verse 13, your settings and mounts were made of gold. Settings and mounts can also, here's, this is crazy. Settings and mounts can also be uh, translated tambourines and flutes. That's why we don't want any tambourines in here. Get that out of here. Very satanic. No tambourines. Especially tambourines that got like little ribbons on them and stuff. Okay. All right. Now you understand the Hebrew better. The Bible. What is the Bible doing here? Watch this. The Bible is drawing us a word picture that describes Satan as sparkling, beautiful, brilliant, musical instrument. It's like this musical instrument is played to praise God. His very presence, Satan's presence, right? Satan's every word and action was to be like a beautiful song that spoke, that spoke of and praised God's praise, uh, God's presence and God's greatness. He was a walking, it's like this, he's a walking advertisement of the awesomeness of God. Nothing else in creation could could. Compared to him, he was perfect in every way that simply being in his presence would likely cause celebration of God's incredible creativity. He is the pinnacle. He is the essence of God's creative handiwork. Wow. I don't know if you've ever thought of Satan like that, but man, now that changes some things, doesn't it? And the way you think about who this creature is, and if I just said it like this, does it surprise you now that sin and evil sometimes appears to be beautiful? Of course. Okay, let's talk about the authority of Satan. Look at verse 14. I placed you there with an anointed guardian cherub. You were the, on, on the holy mountain of God. You walked about amidst fiery stone. So God not only, not only created him to be awesome in, in, in appearance, but he created him to have great authority. It may be that God gave him more power, more privileges than any other created being. You know, when um, the president gets off of a helicopter or Air Force One, you know who's right there at the entrances and exits in front of the White House and everywhere he goes, there's like these guardians, right? These, these unbelievable men and women who just have a, a cr- tremendous amount of authority, guardian authority. And, and uh, they just basically represent the guardian authority of our president. And they can be found in front of all kinds of dignitaries, places where they live or work, embassies, things like that. Now think of this then. the job of a cherub was the highest ranking position that God would offer. 
Throughout the Bible, cherubs have this special task of protecting or ruling over part of God's creation. Important guardians with a lot of authority, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 says, when God, when he drove the man out, drove the man out of the, out of the garden, right? He placed on the eastern side of the orchard in Eden angelic centuries. Those are cherubs who used the flame of a whirling sword, sword to guard the way to the tree of life. So when Adam and Eve were expelled or cast out of the garden... I mean, this is a place where God interacted. His presence was there, where he walked amongst Adam and Eve. And when he cast them out of the garden, he said, you can't come back in. Why? Sin. So he posted cherubs to guard the entrance. You can't get in. Sin can't be in my presence, right? To protect God's holiness. Verse 14 also tells us that Satan was on the holy mountain of God. Throughout the Bible, mountains are used to represent places where God exercised his unbelievable great authority and power. And in verse 13, mount of God or mountain of God represents the ultimate place of power from which God rules. It's a place of brilliant light, fiery stones, stones of fire. So it is his royal court this mountain of God, his royal court. So for Satan to stand in this place meant that he was granted high honor and great authority. It's like Satan is seen as God's prime minister to all creation. That's where he stands, right there. Any creature who viewed Satan in the presence of God would have clearly known that this mighty cherub had been given power and authority like no other in creation. Now, let's move on to the second point. Why did Satan rebel against God? Why would he do this? Satan was indeed a magnificent creature and creation. Unbelievable, yet despite attaining the most privileged position Of any created being, he made a horrible choice that not only broke God's heart, we already saw that, right? It plunged all of creation into a deadly spiritual war, which is what we're going to be talking about now, all right? He chose to rebel against the very God who created him and had given him all that he possessed. You know, this is why, well, I don't know. Let me, let me just keep going. Let's, let's, let's look at the reasons, the reasons Satan has for doing anything. What are his reasons? Look at verses 15 and 17. You just want to skip 16 right there. Let's look at these two verses, right? You are blameless in your behavior from the day you were created until sin was discovered in you. And then in verse 17, it says, your heart was proud because of your beauty You corrupted your wisdom on account of your splendor. I threw you down to the ground. I placed you before kings that they might see you. So what happened is God found something in Satan's heart. Satan, known as the father of lies. By the way, you ever heard of him referred to as that? The father of lies? He lied to himself. He actually thought that he himself was the source of his beauty, wisdom, and authority. Have you ever met somebody like that? They're really beautiful they're beautiful. I think it's kind of funny that they think they're responsible for their beauty. And actually, it's 
your mom and dad, and they're, it's genetics, right? Well, your ugliness is uh, the same way, by the way. <laughs> Some of you, the reason why you're beautiful is definitely because of your mom, okay? So here's the thing, all right? He refused to accept the fact that all of his greatness was from God. He just refused. Therefore, he, had, uh, he, he no longer wanted to submit to God's authority. In his pride, he thought that one as wise as he was ought to be God. That one as beautiful as he was ought to be worshipped and he shouldn't have to worship another person, right? Satan's incredible pride led to his rebellion and he started a terrible war with God. Well, what's his plan? Let's look at his plan. Because being filled with pride was Satan's main problem. And his pride grew and he determined to overthrow the government of heaven, seize control of all of God's power. The prophet Isaiah helps us understand Satan's twisted and ridiculous plan as he attempted to complete his treacherous takeover of God's kingdom. Isaiah chapter 14, turn to Isaiah chapter 14. I'm going to put it up here. Don't depend on that. Isaiah 14, start in verse 12. Another voice or mouthpiece of God, Isaiah the prophet, he says, says this, starting in verse 12. Look, if you, look how you've fallen from the sky, O shining one, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the ground, O conqueror of nations. You said to yourself, I'll climb up to the sky above the stars of El. I will set up my throne. I will rule on the mountain of the assembly of the remote slopes of Zaphon. I will climb up to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. How many times, this is Satan here. This is Satan speaking here. How many times does Satan say, I will? He says, he says it five times. I'll just count it for you, right? From eternity past until the fall of Satan, there's only one will, one will. And, and that was the will of God. Creation in its entirety was designed to work in perfect harmony as long as that creation submitted to the will of God. Satan, however, put, put another will into creation when he rebelled. He now chose to operate from his own will. Each of the I wills in Isaiah is evidence of Satan's desire to have more and more power and to push God out of his life and to become an owner, not a steward of God. You see, that's why we talk about ownership and stewardship all the time. Look at the first I will. I will climb up to the sky because Satan was in such a high, he was in such high command. He had access to the very presence of God. What a moving experience it must have been to enter into the grandeur of God's throne. I'm sure powerful. And yet he could only do so with God's permission. Because of Satan's pride, though, he no longer wanted to come to God's heaven by permission. He wanted to own it, right? 
He didn't want to be a steward of it. He wanted to move God off of this throne and occupy that throne as if it were rightfully his. Satan wanted to storm heaven and take it as his own kingdom. That's what's meant when he said, I will climb up to the sky. Let's keep going. Above the stars of El, I will set up my throne. So to understand the second I will, you got to understand what Isaiah is referring to when he says the stars of El. The stars of El or the stars of God, these important figures are not the stars that hang in the sky. They're, they're angelic beings and they're twisted all the time who these angelic beings are and who they serve and all these kinds of things. But in Job chapter 38 and verses four through seven, God tells us that these stars are actually angels. God had given Satan the job of overseeing angels. This was a tremendous responsibility. It was a portion of great power. So Satan, however, did not create the angels. He just ruled over them on God's behalf. And so the angels knew that Satan's orders were really God's orders. They clearly knew that God had ultimate authority. So tragically, this was not enough for Satan, right? Satan wanted the angels to worship him. He wanted to replace God and rule the angels on his own. He wanted the angels to worship him and join him in his rebellion against God. Keep going. I will rule on the mountain of the assembly or of assembly on the remote slopes of Zephon. So we need to understand several words here. And words are a big deal. And words confuse us sometimes because they don't translate one to one. The word rule basically means to sit as one in authority. So the words on the mountain of assembly, on the remote slopes of Zephon, it's a description It's very descriptive. Biblical meaning of the name Zaphon is that sees and observes, that expects or covers. So when you put this together, it refers to the highest place of authority and rulership that exists. That's what's what's being described here. Psalm chapter 48, 1 and 2, Isaiah 2, 2. Only God can rule from this place. The word assembly refers to all of creation. Psalm 89, while it's true that Satan was delegated tremendous authority to rule for God and therefore had tremendous power, he wanted more. He wanted to sit on God's throne and rule it and rule over all of God's creation, both in heaven and on earth. I'll rule on the mountain of assembly on the remote slopes of Zavon. Here's the next one. I will climb up to the tops of the clouds. So this has special meaning, just like everything, right? Many times throughout the Bible, all over the Bible, God appears to people in clouds. Have you seen that or noticed that? They were evidence of the beauty and the glory of God. And sometimes the clouds sort of veil or cover the glory of God because you would just melt in the presence of his glory and his beauty. Exodus 16, 10, 1 Kings 8, Matthew 24. So as we've seen, Satan was truly beautiful, but his beauty was still only just a faint, just a mere reflection, if that, of the overwhelming beauty and glory of God. 
How ridiculous to think that he could become more beautiful than the God who created him. How ridiculous. Obviously, Satan has become so drunk with his own pride that he's lost all reason. He now wants all of God's glory. Next, I'll make myself like the most high. This is Satan's last I will. And it's, I think, the most tragic. He actually thought he could be like God. Satan must have realized that he was just a mere creation of the all-powerful God. I mean, he's brilliant and wise, right? He's not dumb. He had to have known that he's no match for God, the God of all creation. Even in his drunkenness of pride, he must have understood God's overwhelming greatness. How then did he imagine in his wildest thoughts that he would be or could be like God? God is the only being in all of eternity who's responsible only to himself. No one tells God what to do. He does what he pleases. Nevertheless, Satan insists on being like God in that He too wanted only to answer to himself. He's determined to be his own God and have all other created beings worship him. Somewhere before time begins, a terrible tragedy takes place. Satan, the most beautiful, the wisest, the most powerful of all created beings, turned against God, started a war with God that he couldn't and will not win. So let's, let's move on to this third point. Then what did God do about this rebellion? See, Satan in his incredible arrogance had created a new belief. I know that sounds odd to say, but he does. That belief was independence from God. It starts in the garden, right? Independence from God is better than dependence upon God. That's the new belief. Independence from God is better than dependence on God. God wants dependence on him. Satan wants you to think that independence from God is better. That's his plan. That's him. That's what he's all about. Or you can see it another way. A created being couldn't, could, could be far more successful. You could be far more happy and satisfied by worshiping yourself rather than worshiping God. That's his thinking. Clearly, this was a serious challenge to God and, his, and, and God's authority. So God's response to this horrendous rebellion was both swift and final, by the way. Ezekiel 28, look at the second half of verse 16 now. And the second half of verse 17, so I defiled you and banished you from the mountain of God. The guardian cherub expelled you from the midst of the stones of fire. I threw you down to the ground. I placed you before kings that they might see you. Isaiah 14, 12, look how you've fallen from the sky, O shining one, son of the dawn. You've been cut to the ground, O conqueror of the nations. See, Satan was stripped of his authority to act for God. He was left in disgrace for everybody to see, by the way. All the kings in front of everybody. He was stripped of his rank as guardian of the throne of God, stripped of his rank, removed of his powerful office as head of a head administrator in God's government. 
God in his holiness couldn't tolerate rebellion and evil in his kingdom. He had to drive Satan from heaven. How do we know he's expelled from the midst of the fiery stones? That's heaven, thrown to earth violently by a holy, angry God, right? And though the, the, the battle between Satan and God began in heaven, much of that battle is now being fought on earth. That's what we're going to be working through and, and, and observing and equipping ourselves with because this is a battle. We sing about it all the time. We talk about it. We use the words battle, war, spiritual warfare all the time. But they're like out there kind of words, Right? That means that all of us are being caught in, this, in the middle of this spiritual war. And I think that we're ill-equipped most of the time. I think we need to focus on it. And Satan, in all of his hatred, in all of his anger towards God, is not about to let us escape from his vicious attacks. He's not going to do it. We've already seen that he is completely drunk with pride. And everything has been distorted. So... Can I just give you a few things? Because I can't answer everything today. It's going to take a few weeks. I'm trying to entice you to come back. But let me give you just a few things. This is what we do with evil, right? Let's draw truth from the text a little bit. This is what we do with evil. We expect evil because we're in a battle and a war, a spiritual war. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be astonished, by, uh, astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you as though something strange were happening to you. You're in the middle of a war, Peter is saying. There's a battle going on. Don't, don't walk around going, man, this is crazy. I can't believe this is happening. He's like, come on, man, wake up. Don't be astonished. This is war. I mean, you, you, you've seen the ugliness of war. We were reminded of it yesterday, 20 years, and how it started and what it's all about. Don't be afraid to call it what it is. It is ugly. It's awful. You know, we're so... Anyway, Peter's like, come on, wake up. Here, here's what we do with evil. Number two, endure evil. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Endure evil. Number three, give thanks for the refining effect of evil that comes against you and everything. Give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, even though you don't always understand it. I don't always understand it. I don't always get it. I'm going to give thanks anyway because this is what, how God refines us. Makes us pure. He has purpose. Number four, hate evil. Yeah, hate it. Love must be without hypocrisy. Abhor, abhor what is evil. Cling to what's good. Hate it. Number five, pray for escape from evil. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from e the evil one. I mean, when G Jesus' guys say, would you teach us to pray? Here's part of what he said. Well, pray like this. Number six, expose evil. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Ephesians 5.11, right? Number seven, overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12.21, resist evil. Number eight, so submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James 4.7. There uh, is this word. I don't like to use it. I use it sometimes. I, I, I would rather not use it. It's this word called never. 
You ever use the word never? You never. Okay. But I think there are some nevers that are appropriate when talking about Satan. To begin with, Satan is the ruler of this world, but God, the ultimate ruler, he holds final domination and power and authority and supremacy, not the devil. In other words, God is omniscient and omnipresent, not the devil. I mean, he's powerful and wise, and he's got abilities, but he is not God, all right? So, number one, never despair that this evil world is out of God's control. It's not. It might feel like it, but it is not. There is one purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. There is a purpose. There are reasons, even though we can't always see it. And it's confusing and it's painful. Never despair that this evil world is out of God's control. It might feel like it, but it's not. Number two, never give in to the sense that because of random evil, life is absurd and meaningless. No, no, it is not. How unsearchable are his judgments and how fathomless are his ways, right? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's Romans eleven thirty three and 36. And we write songs about this. This is truth. Don't give in to the sense that because random evil happens, life is absurd and meaningless. It is not. Number three, never yield to the thought that God sins or is ever unjust or unrighteous in the way he governs the universe. Remember, yeah, of course, if you were in charge, you would do it different. It's a good thing we are not. And he is God, right? Right? The Lord is just in all his actions and exhibits love in all that he does, Psalm 145. That is truth. Number four and last, never doubt that God is totally for you in Christ. He's for you in this battle. He's for you in this war. He's for you each and every day when you get up and you face a new battle. If you trust him with your life, you're in Christ Never doubt that all evil that comes to you, even if it takes your life, is God's love, purifying, saving, fatherly discipline. It's not an expression of his punishment and wrath. That's not it. That fell on Jesus Christ as our substitute at the cross. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he accepts, Hebrews 12, 6. So let's put this quote back up now, just with a little more information. Let's look at this quote. When we repudiate Satan's designs and trust the power, wisdom, and kindness of God through Christ, we fulfill God's purpose in letting Satan live. We glorify the immeasurable, matchless worth of Jesus. Wow, you see. Because you're going through this process of changing your beliefs, right? What we have to do is replace the lies of Satan, the false beliefs, and the traps that he sets for us with truth, correct beliefs. This is a battle. A battle for one love. Satan's lies 
and destructive false beliefs are, they're like this. We must perform. We must be approved. We must blame others to avoid punishment and feel ashamed because we can't change. That's the lie. God's truth is and correct belief is because of Christ's work on the cross, we're deeply loved by God, completely forgiven, fully pleasing, totally accepted, and complete in Christ. We have to replace the lies now in the midst of this war with truth because that's where the battle's being fought. He's going to fling lies at you and I constantly, and they're going to be hard to see because they're so beautiful. He's smart. He's wise. He knows exactly where the cracks are, and he knows how to push your buttons and my buttons. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's a war. Uh, We're going to keep talking about this war. Thank you, Father, for just some time to spend here looking at Satan, your unbelievable creative handiwork. I don't understand it all, but I am so grateful that you do. I know that you want relationship with me. I know that's why you've let Satan live. Help us each and every day to repudiate Satan's designs and his plans. I know that's what you want us to do. We want to worship, gather, give, and serve. Continue to teach us to be stewards and not owners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.bellchristian.com.